uh, Revelation chapter 2 is where we will be. Uh, the first in the letters to the seven churches. Uh, there's, there's letters, uh, the, uh, let me start over. <laughs> the letters to the, to the seven churches. Uh, we've been talking about how these letters were, were coming. They're going to form kind of a backbone uh, for the book of Revelation. We'll get into visions and other things. Remember, we're, we're, taking, um, we're, we're taking the tact or we're of the opinion that, that Revelation is not a book that, that functions predominantly chronologically. In other words, the, the events of chapter 2 do not necessarily precede the events of chapter 11, but rather uh, it's cyclical and, and concurrent and it, it's giving the, the same sorts of ideas. And so these are the letters to the churches which we'll go, uh, which we'll, we'll work through. And then we'll come upon, upon the seven visions and those, saint, those visions will also be deeply related and to the seven churches and then thus to the, to the church in, in all time. Uh, the churches are in Asia, uh, Asia Minor, uh, modern day Turkey. Uh, it's the, the, the tradition of the church, the traditional belief of the church that the Apostle John was the bishop to the, to the churches uh, there in Asia, to the churches in Turkey. It is the, um, the traditional belief that he is on the island of Patmos where he's been exiled by an emperor for talking too much about Jesus and thus he is writing a cyclical letter to them. There are seven churches. We talked about this. This is just review. The number seven, when used in Revelation, is meant to symbolize fullness or, or perfection. The reason there's, there's seven churches and not another number is to symbolize the full number of the, number of the church or the fullness of the church, meaning that though we believe that this, this passage had an immediate historical, uh, historical impact, an immediate impact to the people it was originally written to, that it also has an application to all people in all time. So it's all of the church, every place. Uh, which is to say, again, our, our belief that Revelation, um, rather than covering only a period in some great future time, covers all of the period between Jesus Christ's ascension and Jesus Christ's uh, return. So he's going to write to the, to the seven churches. He's going to give a message to, to each of these churches. As he gives this message, he's going to follow the same format, and I'm not going to go deep into format uh, today uh, except as we, we go through it, but he's going to follow the same format to all of, the, all of the churches. He's going to introduce himself, say something about himself. He's going to end with a, uh, with a command to listen and then what, what comes in between. Uh, the churches are written to roughly in the same order that a cyclical letter would have gone to them. So if you were going to deliver this message and you were coming from Patmos, where he was exiled, which is about 30 miles off, off the coast uh, there, it would have gone to Ephesus first and then to Smyrna, then to, then to these places. It is a cyclical letter. It was meant to be read, but the message is not uh, specifically by these churches, but the message is not limited to these, these churches. And so the first church he is going to write to is the church in Ephesus, and he's going to send them a, a message, and this is what he's going to say to them. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tasted those who call themselves apostles and are not, and are found to be false. I know that you are uh, enduringly, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have... Yeah, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he writes to the church at uh, Ephesus. He's going to start with introducing who he is. He's going to talk about himself first. Usually what he says about himself and how he says it will apply to how, what he tells them that they need to do right? So he will imply right away, or he'll say right away, this is who I am, and this is how you're going to have the strength to do what I tell you 
to, to do. Uh, he begins with this, to the angel at the church of Ephesus. Remember, there's an emphasis on the, on the, the messengers that he holds in his right hand. Uh, from last week, remember, he said he held the stars in his right hand. The stars were the angels of the churches or the messengers of the churches. Uh, intended probably to imply or, or simply to imply this, that, that the origin, the power, the strength of the church is not vested simply in a, a, a terrestrial place. In other words, it's not just uh, um, uh, land. It's not just here. It's not just earth. The, the church is not a, a social club with good ideas, good thoughts, uh, better thoughts than, than other people. It's not a work club. It's not a, not a service club. Rather, it has its, its origin and its strength in something other than what we would call the natural world. And so there is an angel or a messenger meant to emphasize this, that this church gets its power from a spiritual realm, that the church gets its protection from a spiritual place, that the church gets its, um, gets its, its energy and everything that it's called to be from someplace other than just being natural. There is an angel for the church in Ephesus. In other words, God is intimately involved with all of the churches that make up the, the church. God is overseeing, God is empowering, and he's sending his messengers from the spirit realm to, to, uh, to oversee them. Uh, we know this because he holds them in his hand. Here we see the angel in the church at Ephesus to the angel at the church of Ephesus write. To the, so he writes to the angel. In other words, he's saying to to the one who I sent to oversee, write, write this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So again, he's going to emphasize, I am the one who holds the messengers. I am the one who holds the, the future. You will see again and again and again and again uh, references to, 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 to Jesus, references to the, to the work of, of the Father, the reference to God. And what it will emphasize again and again is his power, his sovereignty, and his control. He is not ever out of control of anything. And that includes the messengers of the church. He holds the angels. He holds the protection of the church in his hand. In other words, they work at his behest. They work in his service. They do as he asks them to do. He is intimately involved in the spiritual reality, the physical, all of the reality that is the church, which should be exciting to all of us to realize that we are not just meeting in, uh, again, as I've already said, just as a club this morning, but there is an angel for the church in Wyoming. There is someone that, that Jesus himself holds in his right hand who is responsible for, for overseeing and empowering and and. and, and in uh, working with what we do or what is crosswinds or what is the church in Wyoming here. To the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. We talked about that last week. The seven golden lampstands are the churches. Jesus walks amongst them. His presence is amongst the church. And so in, in, in a spiritual sense, we take, um, we take strength or we draw strength from the reality that Christ is amongst us in, in a understanding our role and who we are and understanding uh, the, the importance of the church in this world. We also understand though that the presence of Christ is acutely felt amongst the, the, the church here in a, a um, in a physical sense or in a very real sense. The presence of Christ in our day and our time is amongst the lampstands or amongst the churches. We then become a representation or, or an ambassador, or even ourselves, a messenger for the presence of Christ in the world because Christ dwells amongst us. He walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. So that is who he is. He was minded, here I am. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one who empowers you. I'm the one who protects you. I'm the one who walks amongst you. And because I am that, verse two, I know your works. I know what you've done. And so, there, there needs to be sort of a realization, uh, not to jump to application too quickly, but there's a realization that Christ is aware of the works of the church. He knows what is going on. He sees what is, is happening. It is true in here, here in Ephesus. I know your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, how you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be fast. I know that you endure patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. It all sounds good right there. All is going well right there for the church at 
Ephesus. They have much to be commended for. They have had uh, works. Their works seem to be in that first verse, predominantly connected to their toil and their patient endurance against persecution. Remember, Revelation is written, whether you believe it was written before AD 70 and the persecutor is Nero, or you believe it was written after AD 70 and the persecutor is one of, of the, the coming emperors, Revelation is still written to a group of churches that are under persecution. John himself on the island of Patmos is alive, but tradition tells us that for speaking the name of Jesus, he was boiled in a pot of oil, but did not die, so they pulled him out. The churches are experiencing persecution, and they are going to continue to experience persecution. They, in fact, experience persecution from both inside uh, their tradition, meaning a lot of them having come out of, out of um, Judaism, the faith itself, we, we, believing, we be, <laughs> believing as we do that Christ is the fulfillment of, of all that the Old Testament speaks, that all of the plan of God speaks, that, that Abraham is the father not only of, of those who are ethnically Jewish, but the father of all of those who by faith follow Jesus. They are experiencing persecution not only from people who are pagan like, like uh, uh, the Romans, but they're experiencing persecution from people for whom they would have felt great kinship people who said that Abraham was their father too and so they're getting persecuted all over the place and people are coming to them with with different attacks and what do they do they stand strong they have patient endurance they do not abandon uh, they says they cannot bear with those who are evil you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. This sounds like, especially in, in our own time, and frankly within our, our own tradition, this sounds like immediately a great church, because what he is talking about is this church is doctrinally pure. It believes the right things. It may not believe the right things um, uh, exclusively. It may have issues, but on the major the major teachings of what they were supposed to believe, the major points of what they should know, this church was very much right on. They were a doctrinally pure church. They're orthodox. He commends them because when false teachers come, they would openly and clearly say, no, you're a false teacher. You can't be a part of us. This ought not be. This immediately sounds to many of us, many of us like a good church. This sounds like, well, what could be the problem? They're doctrinally pure, which is, um, I think, probably rightly our first issue when, when choosing a church. I think that is the right way to choose, but it, it's going to go on. But let's just talk about it, it for a minute. I do think in our, our, our time and in the generation we've come through that we have put doctrinal purity on a very, very high pedestal. And again, I, I approve that pedestal, but we need to watch out for what comes next with, with these folks, only to say that this, this is a doctrinally pure group. They did not wander from the teachings. I know your works, I know your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, but have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So not only are they doctrinally pure, but they seem to be experiencing persecution for their doctrinal purity. People are coming along going, you believe that? How can you believe that? That's the wrong thing to believe. And, and they are apparently, because they are having to endure patiently, experiencing some sort of persecution for their doctrinal purity. We believe the right things and we're being persecuted for it. And so we, again, I think, would look at that if you're just reading these first verses and go, what could be the problem in Ephesus? They're doctrinally pure, they're orthodox, and they're experiencing persecution for it. In our time, because we've just come out of several movements uh, that have attacked Scripture, have attacked uh, biblical truth in, in several different ways, we are, we are prone to think of this as a, as a great church, right? We came out of the, um, of the early 2000s. The early 2000s saw, uh, saw a movement uh, called Various Things, the Emergent Movement, the Emerging Movement, all kinds of stuff. 
Um, I don't really need you to go back and learn about that movement. It is pretty dead, but in the early 2000s, it posed a serious threat to, to the church because they came along and said, what is this we've done with, with history? Uh, being influenced by lots of philosophers in lots of different places and lots of different things, they, they started to, to make attacks on, on Scripture, and they started to put into, into contrast this idea of orthodoxy, what the church teaches, and, uh, or the right teaching of the church, and orthopraxy, the right actions of the church, and they, they forced kind of a separation from them, even though they would have claimed they were not, and said, we should focus on orthopraxy. The result in the church was often attacks on, on on the teaching of what Scripture said, attacks on whether we could even know what Scripture said. Uh, it was common uh, amongst those people claiming to be evangelicals but teaching something else. It was common for them to suggest that certainty itself was a sin and we could not know, and to even claim to know was, was an error. They, they attacked the way we knew things, the way we thought uh, about things. They, they did subtle attacks on, on how Scripture is formed how Scripture gets to us, what Scripture means to us. All of these sorts of things, which were, uh, when some of you were just starting college, this was a major movement, and we had to deal with it, look into the eye of it, and decide whether we would accept the, the movements of what was then called emergent or emerging, or whether we would hold to what was the traditional faith handed down to us uh, from the apostles. And even that statement I said is maybe a spoiler alert on which side I take with that, but it was a, a decision that the church had to face. In fact, we were told again and again by the one side that if we did not side with them, side with the church that was emerging, change the way we, we did things, change everything, then the church would be no, no more. And so what, what ultimately was discovered and what you would ultimately realize if you study it is that the whole thing was just a rehash of the fight that the church had had in the 30s in the, in the liberalism uh, fundamentalist fight when the, uh, when the liberal people came along and said, it doesn't matter whether Jesus really lived or walked to earth. It doesn't matter whether Jesus really died or rose again. What really matters is that we care for people and love people. And so that whole movement was, was very common actually in the 1930s and before in the church, which is how we get uh, fundamentalism in, in the early and positive sense of use, of, use of that word, where people responded and said, no, we need to go back to the fundamentals of the faith. If Jesus claimed to have come to earth, that Jesus claimed to have walked the earth, that Jesus claimed to have lived on earth, that Jesus claimed to die and he claimed to be resurrected, then either he is a liar and our faith is completely useless or that is fundamental. We should not abandon those things. And if you look at that movement and those fights and you take it into the early 2000s, the exact same fight repeated itself with, with this, this movement, uh, this emergent movement said evangelicalism needs to become this. It was always fun because they were telling evangelicals what they needed to be while accepting none of the core tenets of what an evangelical was or what an evangelical should be. And so this was, in the early days, a very serious fight. So in the early days of my ministry, the early 2000s, were very active in blogging, very active in talking, very active in teaching, going, no, we need to hold to this faith, this faith found, found in Scripture. And so that movement is rising up. In, in the face of that, they, uh, uh, that movement rising up, the thing about anything uh, about pendulums and pendulum swings is that any sort of movement that rises up uh, will typically raise up a counter movement. The most influential on us, and I think the most influential in, in, uh, in probably the last you know, six, seven years of the church, maybe even going back to before that, from the mid-2000s, to where we are today, the most influential movement in that was a movement that was either called, uh, called uh, the Young Restless Reform Movement or what's called Neo-Calvinism, the Neo-Calvinist movement. What happened here was the movement being driven, the emerging or the emergent movement being driven by young people who said, this is what young people believe, and if you want to reach young people, you need to do this, do this, do this. This is all young people will believe. A counter-movement formed also amongst young people in very odd places, in the places least likely to accept historical Orthodox Christianity, in places where Christianity had not sprung up and not been effective. Young men went to those places and started to preach the gospel. The gospel they preached was connected to a historical gospel, connected to, to people uh, flowing from Scripture 
scripture, and I don't want to um, over-canonize the gentleman I'm going to talk about. I'm just talking about a history movement. So uh, f- drawing from scripture, but especially then from teachers uh, of scripture, like John Calvin, like Jonathan Edwards, um, teachers of, of scripture, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, these young men went into places affected by, largely by their theology, especially Edwards, I think, for... Um, for Amer- in America. Edwards was very uh, influential. If you don't know John Edwards, you probably remember him from your class at school. He was the guy who did the sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so if you never studied any deeper, you think that's what he's about. Predominantly, he is about, was about something that John Piper might have called one-point Calvinism. The one point was this, is that everything is about God's glory and everything exists for it. And so we should be about God's glory. That is essentially the, the, the heart of the teaching of Edwards. It's also the heart of the teaching of, of other later influences. And so if you saw this movement, it was a movement spurred by young people, but inspired by respect for older people. So uh, an older uh, grandpa-like guy who wears brown suits in and uh, and with those little elbow patches on them, and uh, looks like a squirrely little fellow named John Piper started to become influential amongst these young people, and these young people, uh, I think, started to attach themselves to him as though he were their grandfather, and he took his role of grandfathering them seriously so that he entrusted to them and taught to them the various teachings of Scripture and how to respond to Scripture. So this movement... Young, restless reform, neo-reform, made up, interestingly enough, not of denominations, but of people who were Baptists, of people who were in the Reformed Church, of people who were in the Presbyterian Church, these sorts of people, drawing from older teachers, Tim Keller, John Piper, inspired young teachers to go into place. And so what happens is, in the midst of this movement telling us, you'll never reach anybody for Christianity unless you abandon the core tenets of Christianity, that movement was sort of out there. These dudes showed up in places like Seattle and they started to preach the message that had been given to them by people again, like John Calvin, by Jonathan Edwards, by Tim Keller, by John Piper. They started to preach that message as found in scripture. And the message was this, is that this, everything in this world exists for the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. We should pursue the glory of God. God and God alone is in charge. God is sovereign. God is sovereign in, in, in choosing you for election. You were unworthy of him, but he chose you and therefore he gets the glory and he gets you. That would be the core message. They went into these neighborhoods. The emergent movement and other movements that were effective, including uh, or, or that were out there, including the church growth movement, was telling them this. You must go into a neighborhood. You must change everything related to tradition, and you must shorten your messages, and you must make your messages ultra-practical. Young man named uh, Mark Driscoll goes into a neighborhood in Seattle, and in the early days of his ministry, rather than making his messages shorter, rather than making them more practical, rather than making them more palatable, goes on a streak of preaching very, 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 very long messages. In fact, I think I read once that his longest message, he went either for an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes. So if you think I'm long-winded, I'm not that long-winded, right? He went this. A weird thing starts to happen in Seattle, a city where he, by his own testimony, has said over and over and over, was a city with more dogs than Christians when they showed up on the scene. In a city like Seattle, he went and started to preach that. In a city like Seattle, where they embrace all kinds of oddities, meaning they're, they're more open to sort of spiritual experimentation than we are, are here, uh, but they are typically very, very, very opposed to the sort of orthodox Christianity that we might practice here. He went and started to preach hour and 45 minute long messages directly from scripture where he exposited things word for word and what people might have called very old fashioned and an odd thing started to happen. His congregation began to grow very, very, very quickly. And it began to grow not with old people or, or with, 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 uh, with people who were so embroiled in tradition that were looking for that because uh, though they, they preached the gospel in a very maybe traditional way, the, the elements, as you might find them here, were kind of non-traditional. They grew from young punks 
and, and uh, uh, all the kinds of people that you would explicitly say would be closed to the gospel, and it started to grow. And so from, from that movement, other people uh, spring up around the country. There's guys who's with names like uh, Matt Chandler. There's a dude whose name is Eric Mason. There's uh, dudes like Doug Logan. All of these guys who believed in contextualization but did not believe in abandoning the, the, the scripture to... Um, to, uh, to the other side, which said, we need to compromise on this issue of Scripture, or Scripture isn't that, right? So here, here's what happened, okay? Most of you, unless you're like an old head, unless you've been around for a while, most of you are not deeply conversant in this issue of emerging emergent. You are not even familiar with that conversation. And yet, when I was starting to plant, it was the biggest conversation in, in the church, the reality here is that it is basically gone. The people who were, were purveyors of that theology, those people who would push that, that theology, that whatever it was, that uh, philosophy, the people who would push that have, defini- who have, have mostly been relegated to the far edges of anything that we would call Christian. One of the biggest writers in, in the movement, one who was most famous in his last book, uh, in, in his last book, when talking about, about God, he, sa- he says something like, the person, the, whatever you look to for hope in life, whether you call that thing God or the universe or something else, right? That's a person who used to be viewed as inside of Christianity. What's happened is their views, because they were not rooted in anything, brought them outside of Christianity. They're not even connected to it. So that you ask that same gentleman, who's the most influential person in your life spiritually? He does not say Jesus. He did say Oprah. That is, um, we talked about her last week. She's becoming a regular, right? Um, this is what happened. So the people in that movement moved to the edges and actually moved outside of what we would call evangelicalism or orthodox Christianity. They're outside. They're still saying all the sorts of things, but they don't have the influence within because they're recognized as fundamentally not Christian. So what happened then, all of that to say this, is that there was a counter movement. The counter movement was theologically conservative. We believe connected to the message once handed to the apostles. We believe when Paul said, what you have heard from me, teach to other reliable men and teach them to teach to others, you know, hand these doctrines down, that the doctrines and the theology given by the apostles came back into the church in a huge way, and it started to reach young people like crazy. The reason you don't hear about emergent is because, and this is probably not the right way to say this, but in the battle of philosophies or theological positions, that movement lost. It got wiped out. It got obliterated. I tell you that background to make a point for you here. You are largely descendants, whether you know it or not, of that second movement, that young restless reform movement. You are descendants of that. That is a movement that has had great influence in, in my life. It has had great influence in every pastor we have ever hired who's ever worked here's life. It will have great influence, rather, whether directly or just theologically, in every pastor we ever will have here. Our theological statement, our statement for who we are as a church, um, our statement of belief, we actually borrow almost directly from the Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition is a movement that rose up in response to these false gospels put out there by people like the emergent, the emergent people. Which is to say, you, as a child of that movement, whether you realize that or not, sit weekly in a church that takes its theology very seriously. Now, movements, especially when they're pendulum swing movements, have excesses, right? Sometimes they go too far. And so the danger in a movement like ours is, is this, is that, well, let me, let me actually put a pause on that and let us go next to the problem. Let me just say here that you sit in a church that is so far very similar to everything that is talked about in, in Ephesus. You are people who, who, who pay close attention to whether doctrine is true or false. You are people who look for prophets that are, are false. You are people who, who seek to ignore them. You are people who seek to call people back to worship in the one God rather than a prosperity gospel, rather than, than, than easy, all of those sorts of things. You are the kind of thing that is talked about in Ephesus here, which, by the way, if you're us, seems good because we take theology seriously. It all seems good so far until we get to this. I would point out 
just secondarily before I jump on for a minute, that I know you endure patiently are bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. These people are actually experiencing persecution for their right belief, right? And so we would naturally think, well, then everything must be peachy there. Everything's great. It's good. But it does not continue that way. Verse 4 says this, but I have this against you. See, Jesus holds something against them. What does he hold against them? You have abandoned the love that you had at first. That needs qualified because we don't necessarily know what, what that means. Does he mean the emotional love? Does he mean that you don't feel the warm and fuzzy feelings that you originally felt when you first encountered Jesus? Is that what he is talking about? Um, I would say that we, we need to step a few uh, verses down. We need to continue on. I know, uh, sorry, verse four, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. How does he know that they have abandoned? Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. Here's what has happened. They have a church that is completely orthodox. They are a church that believes the right things. They are a church that keeps out the people who believe the wrong things. They protect the doctrinal purity they protect Jesus' uh, reputation by making sure that when he's spoken of, he's spoken of correctly. And yet, Jesus says, I hold this against you. You don't have a first love. You've abandoned it. And I know this because you do not do the works that you did at first. Right? You don't do the works that you did at first. What then is the content of those works? I think based upon... Uh, Revelation 1, you remember back in Revelation 1, where it tells us what Jesus came to do for, for or what came to, uh, came to make the church, came to make believers in all time. It says this, he has made us a kingdom and priest, or a kingdom of priests, right? He's made us into a people and he's made us priests. And we talked about what is the predominant role of priests. We in our time, when we talk about the priesthood of all believers, tend to interpret that internally, meaning do you use your gifts in the congregation or do you confess? You, we, priesthood of all believers means we can go directly and confess our sins to Jesus. We don't need another priest to be an intermediary between us. That is one meaning, but the predominant meaning in Revelation is this, is the predominant role of the priest was to mediate between the people and God. As a kingdom and priest, we talked about this, a predominant role of the church is to mediate between the people, and by people I mean culture and God. That is the role of the church in, in the place where it has been put. God intended for the church to function as priests and intended for us to mediate between our culture and God. And, and in this case, what I mean is mediate is that it intended for us to be a witness or a light in our culture so that the people might see who our God is and worship him. It, it, that was the intention. This is that that point I'm making is further buoyed by the reality that, that what, is the, what is the symbol of the church? It is a lampstand. Why is it a lampstand? Because a lamp gives off light. What does light do? It lights the darkness and draws people to it. That's the responsibility of the church. What seems to have happened here in Ephesus is, is that though they, were, though they were theologically sound, though they were theologically astute, Though they worked hard to make sure that there was no false teaching, though they said the right things, they taught the right things, they endured persecution for believing, teaching, and saying the right things. They did not have enough love for who God was. The love of God was not so overwhelming to them that they felt compelled to take that love out into the, other, into the rest of the world. It's problematic that they said, we know all about you. We know who you are. We know about your character. We can teach it. They could say, know, and believe all things about God, but it was not affecting their hearts to the point that they felt compelled to share it in any sort of meaningful way anymore. If you understand this, when they, so that connects the first love in this way. You know this. If you get something and you love that thing, you tell other people about that thing, typically. Maybe some of you are not like that, my wife and I are definitely like this. If we do something enjoyable and we love it, we are going to tell you about it and we are going to want you to do it, no matter what it is, whether it's a restaurant or a vacation. If we experience it and we love it, we tell you. If you get a, a new... Um, uh, yesterday, our neighbors got a new kitten and um, the kids came running. This is a common occurrence in our house. Uh, we're not getting any more pets, but we like to enjoy other people's. 
right? So they came around, they're like, there's a kitten out here! And so I get up, I was, um, I was laying down, I was going to take a nap, but uh, uh, in the face of a, of a new kitten, the nap became unimportant. I went out to see the new kitten, it was tiny and adorable. Uh, I don't remember its name, so we're going to call it Bob. So I like... Uh, I was holding, and it was like little, like, I'm like, holy cow, I can't believe you're, and so here's the thing, my kids have this love for kittens, and their natural response is to run and tell other people about the kittens, right? What happens, though, is that kittens turn into cats, and when kittens turn into cats, you kind of love the cat, like we were saying yesterday, oh, we love our cat, our cat's great, but we don't run and tell people about the cat. Like, anytime I'm trying to take a nap, my kids come in too much Anyways, I don't need them coming in every time they see Claudia. Dad, Claudia just walked by. Yeah, she lives here. It's okay, right? No, Dad, she's close. She's here. I know it. That cat lives here. Well, she was outside for a few minutes. True, but she's going to go far. I've seen her. I've experienced her. I like Claudia. I'm not getting up from a nap for Claudia, right? Good cat, not get up from a nappable. Right? Here's what happens when you lose your first love: is that when your first love is diminished. Or, or I shouldn't even say diminished, when you get too comfortable with that which you love, you tend to become less vocal. You tend to tell other people less about it. You tend to express that less. And so in the Ephesians church, they had become comfortable in their faith. They had reduced it probably to, a, to an intellectual pursuit, to a theological pursuit, to this sort of thing. And so they're comfortable with it. They still in their heart would say, yes, we love Jesus. We teach about him clearly. We cast out the false apostles. But their role as a kingdom and priest is to be a mediator between the church and all of those outside of the church. And they're not telling anybody about them because their love has grown, has grown colder or their love is not influencing them as much. They're not in love with Jesus in the way that they used to be so they don't tell people about Jesus like they used to do it, right? So now we get in, into a problem because what we have to ask ourselves then is what kind of church are we? Are we the kind of church that is excited about good theology because good theology teaches us about a good God which causes us to worship a good God more, which causes us to love him more, which causes us to express more about him, which causes us to tell more people and do more things so that more people might know that Jesus is Lord or are we content to just preach that message to ourselves? That becomes the problem in, in the church. And, and frankly, um, to a certain extent, if I'm being honest, a lot of us, I know, are actually products of the church at Ephesus. I don't know what the name was on the front of your building, but it was essentially the church at Ephesus. It was a church that took its teaching seriously, but did not do anything to move that teaching or that love for Jesus outside of those doors. And so I have a background in, in, a, in a congregation that used, used to literally debate whether evangelism was the role of the church. Well, that's not the job of the church. That's not our role. That's not what we do. That's not what we're supposed to, supposed to do. Um, at the same time, they viewed themselves as very theologically pure, very theologically solid, right teaching. Now, if you can make that first statement with a straight face, you're not theologically solid, but they would have viewed themselves as, as such, right? So, and a lot of us are actually products of, of, of churches. Grand Rapids, Michigan is full of churches. And you go, why are most of our churches dying? It's because of this, right? They care deeply for what the, 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 the theological statement of the church says. They care deeply in Grand Rapids for what the catechism says says. They care deeply for what the creed would say. They care deeply for their theological position. They have ceased to care deeply enough for the God of all of those things, and so they are not expressing him or reaching out in any way into their neighborhoods. In fact, they have convinced themselves, and I think this is almost satanic, they have convinced themselves that it is not their job or the job of the church to reach into their neighborhood in any way. It's not the job of their church to evangelize in any way. It's not the job of the church to do those kinds of good works in any way. Again, I grew up in a church that debated these things and continually, or until probably too late, came down on the wrong side of those issues. And many of you did too. 
Um, that may be a function of those specific churches or it might be the function of the culture in America, but we need to deal with the reality that we sit in a country where Christianity is becoming afterthought. If you're following things, following the news, every day, every political article you read is actually a story about how, um, how Christianity has lost all influence as a cultural as any sort of cultural marker in America, right? That's what those things are about. When you're shocked about whoever it is that we're going to elect president, I want to explain to you that that is, that is not simply a political issue, but that is, that is the reality. And the reality is this, is that the church has almost zero influence in the culture today anymore. We can fight, we can do all sorts of things, but we've lost almost zero influence in, in our own culture. And frankly, I don't, for some people, they'd say, well, let's go to war. Let's get our influence back. I don't know that that's, that's the answer. I don't think influence is won that way. And I think one of the reasons we, we've, we've lost all influence and the reason why our, our, our country is in sort of an odd, strange spiral about who it is and what it thinks. And, and that's why every decision we see coming from the president or coming from, from Congress or coming from rules of laws and other, why they seem so amazingly odd and strange and inconceivable to us is because there is no longer any sort of footing in the way that the Christian mind would think or the way the Christian mind would view things. We are almost totally and completely a post-Christian nation. The reason why, though, see, the problem with culture warriors is they want to blame culture. The reality with scripture is it wants to blame us. It's us. We're the reason we're in a post-Christian culture. The church is the reason it's broken. For one, the church became more interested in consolidating and keeping power, and this happened post-Constantine, so it happened a long time ago. But anytime a church becomes Constantinian or interested in keeping or, or, or having power or influencing culture, apart from the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and his ability to rescue people from sin, death, and hell, apart from that, anytime the church tries to hold on to power, the church dies off in that place. It happened during Constantinianism. It happened in Europe. It's happening in America. The the reality is, it says, you go, well, then the church is going to die and the church will be dead and Christianity, no. See, here's the cool thing. I, wa I saw this map the other day and maybe I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I'll bring it up again. I saw this map that showed the history of Christianity and in the history of Christianity, when it starts out in, in a small place, a small little area in the Middle East, and it would show by color how it grew over time. What I realized is that Christianity seemed to grow in places, and then it would become almost dominant, and then it would fade out, and it would grow and become dominant someplace else. But what I realized, ultimately, if you looked at the whole map, Christianity the whole time continued to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. In other words, Jesus continues to reach more and more people. However, I think the reality... Uh, is that while the church continues to grow and grow and grow and add more and more people, God deals with churches like the church in America, and he deals with churches that want to consolidate power instead of proclaim good news, churches that have lost their, their first love. But we'll deal with that by continuing in the, in the passage, which says this. It says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did before. Again, we can show again, we don't have a lot of time, but those works are, are, are referring to evangelistic outside the church kinds of works. Repent and do the works you did before. Uh, you did it first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the verse I want. So you go, so why does the church disappear in various places? The reason the church disappears is this. Jesus comes along and he removes them. He blows out their lamp. He says, you're no longer behaving like a church. Therefore, I remove your lampstand from its place, right? There is for the individual, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is, in reality, a judgment for churches as a whole who cease to be churches. If they cease to be representatives of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in their place and in their time, and they cease to do the works necessary to make Jesus known with their first love, if they cease to do that, Jesus looks at them and goes, sorry, you're just no longer fitting the criteria of what it means to be my church. Therefore, I remove my lampstand. You're no longer a church. So if you wonder what's going on in all these places with the map, what happens is Jesus comes along and goes, you're not a good witness anymore. You're not my church. You have your, my name on your front, but you don't have me at your core. I remove your lampstand. And he removes them from being a part of, uh, of the church. When that happens, the church fades in that place, but Jesus is still in the business of growing the church. Scripture is clear, right? Though they persecute my bride. Uh, sorry, I was going to quote a song instead of the verse. 
As I say, though they persecute my bride on every side, all is well. She is not defenseless, which is a quote from, from Matthew where it, where it says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, the church is not going to lose in history, right? The full seven, the fullness of the church doesn't lose in history. The reality and what should scare us is that individual churches often lose in history, right? So the best church we know of, if you go into scripture and look at the, the church, the, the real founding in the church, people say, well, the church begins at Jerusalem. It does, but the, but the strongest church is probably Antioch. It's multi-ethnic. It includes Jews and Gentiles. It has great leadership. It's growing. It's doing great things. It's one of the best churches you'll read about in scripture, and it's also not there today because churches fade Churches lose their first love, and Jesus comes to them with a judgment. He removes from them his lampstand. He goes, you're not a church. He essentially blows out their, out their fire. And so it, it caused this interesting question to me this week, is that a lot of us have attended gatherings. A lot of us have attended congregations. A lot of us have attended buildings where they talked about Jesus, but the reality needs to grip some of us that what we might have attended our whole life was rather not a church, but rather some sort of club or some sort of other thing, some sort of gathering that was not a church. Because this is a church, and, and if those places that we grew up in and those places that we were that had no impact or no attempt at impact outside their front doors, they had no works that shared the goodness of Jesus. If we grew up in those, those places, if they have not already had their lampstand removed, we need to be aware and in deep prayer for those places where we came from because they are about to. The word of God is sure. If you find that offensive that I suggest that maybe what you grew up in was just a building or a group of people or a gathering or a club, I apologize. This is the text. I cannot avoid the text. The judgment of Christ comes upon those places that claim to be churches and are not. And I want you to catch this. It's not some, some horrible, rinky-dink, awful operation. It's not what we would think of, right? It's not some crazy, heretical dude on TV throwing the Holy Spirit baseball into someone while he tries to raise money. We're all fine with God removing his lampstand from them. These are theologically solid, theologically uh, informed. These are people who are pursuing the right teachings of Scripture. They're kicking out people who have the wrong teachings. They're testing apostles. They're doing all of those things. They believe everything right. They're suffering per persecution for believing everything right. And Jesus still says, get it together or I will judge you and remove your lampstand. You will no longer be a church. You can call yourself a church, but I'll no longer walk amongst you and you'll no longer have a lampstand. You might not like to hear that for your past, but you also might not like to hear it in your present. I think we need to evaluate then, who are we and what do we do? I do think, uh, Jesus, that largely in the movements that have, have affected us, um, which is uh, sort of this, this other movement that came along at the same time, which was called missional. The problem is if you're a theology or church geek, ever, something's always coming along and it's always got a name and people are always naming stuff. And so it's only really a pain if you work on a computer a lot and you were trying to type those words because the computer never recognizes the words that we use every day. And one of those is missional. And missional should, in my mind, been the most logical thing ever said to anybody ever, but it's simply this, is that Jesus left the church on earth to be on mission for him, right? It's based on the idea of this, the missio dei, there's God has a mission. It's based upon uh, on this, that God sent Jesus. Jesus was on a mission. It's based upon this, that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was on mission. The Holy Spirit sends the church. The church should be on mission, right? And that's what's taught here. So this missional movement also starts to come in, into, into the church. And so though churches, since 1980, uh, about with the advent of a church called Willow Creek and other churches had started a seeker-sensitive movement, right? Which was a movement to make church uh, in the way they did things in some of the traditions, 
easier to understand or easier to relate to as, as an unbeliever. Like you could walk in a door and it would not be so, uh, so freaky weird that people would not just walk out, right? So in 1980, the church growth movement started uh, led by a guy named Donald McGowan, uh, in, uh, influenced a dude named uh, Bill Hybels, plants Willow Creek. Willow Creek starts the seeker movement. It was effective in this, in this sense that it, it drew back a lot of people who had been who had left the church and had been offended by some of the traditions of the church or didn't like that. So a lot of disaffected Christians came back and people were saved in it. So I don't have anything particularly negative to say about that movement except for this, is that the movement seemed to say, if we build a better church, they will come, right? And the problem with that statement is that it's an inversion of the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, the church growth movement said, build a better church and people will come to you and then you can share the gospel uh, with them uh, through a hula hooping pastor and a nice skit, usually. But um, they had all these sorts of things. The, the church growth movement is where we got clowns juggling on stage and pastors riding in on motorcycles. And so I'm not completely negative on that except for to say that that at the end of the day, it's an inversion of the Great Commission and, and it didn't really... It didn't really work. And so the missional movement comes along and goes, yeah, here's, here's the thing. We don't have a problem with them. We're not, we're not angry about that. We're not saying anything, but we believe that the Great Commission tells us to go. And so the missional movement started to ask again this question. How does the church move from inside its four walls to outside its four walls? How does the church again learn to go instead of expecting people to come? And so we have been largely, hugely influenced by the missional movement, right? That's why in the early days when people first started, this, our, my generation specifically, my generation is pastoring and sees this emergent thing come along. I'll be honest, we check it out and we go, maybe they are saying the right thing because we had grown up a lot of times in churches that had lost their first love, that did nothing outside their four doors. Or we had been, had encountered uh, uh, churches, we had encountered churches like the Seeker churches, but the reality is the Seeker church, while it was very effective in reaching people from the boomer generation who had, been, had experience with church, had church in their background, it was not very effective in reaching people from our generation who were second or third generation unchurched, right? The problem ultimately with, with this idea that the way to reach people is to make your church more contemporary or to make your church this way or do this is that what I often like to say is the idea that for the typical American male that coming into a church and singing a worship song that sounds like it was written by one direction, if you think that is less stressful than singing a worship song that sounds like it was written by Mozart, you don't understand the American male mind, right? And so therein becomes the number one problem of, of going, you come to our church, it's different, it's new, it's this. Actually, people from my generation don't know the traditional church like I grew up in. They only know contemporary churches. And so I say all of that to say this, is that the missional movement sort of comes along and, it, and it's a corrective to say that the church is to be on mission, that, that as I just said, God sends Jesus, Jesus sends the Spirit, the Spirit sends the church, and the church is called to go. And so the church needs to have an impact outside its four doors. Those things influence us greatly. And those have been our protection. That's the reason why we do seek to do things that are outside of our four walls. That is why we do say to you again and again, neighbors reach neighbors. That is history. It is also the future, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ spreads all over the Roman Empire without a single crusade and without a single seeker church. The apostle Paul and his boys never rode in to their church on a souped up chariot expecting people to show up and he never gave them them anything more than going going and what happened was the apostle paul would preach to a group of people the group of people would accept jesus and then they would go and tell their neighbors because they had first love and so that's that is to be the impact of, of, of the church and so don't feel like i think it would be dangerous to hear this message exclusively as saying the church must do this and you to interpret that as saying, well, the church must have programs that do that. Because a lot of times when you think of programs, programs are great. They save you from having to do anything and they, they allow people like, like Dave and I to be employed, right? We get to organize programs. You get to watch us organize programs and feel good about it. I would caution you against interpreting it that way. Paul's, 
or John's understanding of the church would be in the church made up of people. His understanding would not have been programmatic, and his understanding would have been to understand those, those individuals as a part of a whole. So that John would have understood when he says you've lost your first love, he is talking about the tenor and the attitude of the members of the church that make up the whole. Right? So the answer isn't necessarily, although we continue to do things as a whole body in the neighborhood, the solution to not having our lampstand removed in a lot of senses is for me to regularly remind you, for Dave to regularly remind you that neighbors reach neighbors. It's how the gospel spread all over the, the, the first century. In the first century, there's a handful of believers. By the third century, it's taken over the Roman Empire. Not a single crusade, not a single, uh, not, not a single uh, uh, seeker church, uh, not a, a single mega church, really, None of that. What it had was people going and telling their neighbors that Jesus was real. What happened is the, Jesus is so, so smart, right? Because he's God. Uh, but God is wise in what he did. When God chose where he was going to, where he was going to set the, the early believers, he set, them, uh, he set them in coastal lands, right? He set them along the coast. So he, John's on Patmos, but it's like 30 miles to the coast. And these, these, these places all around Turkey are within, within striking distance of, of the coast. Corinth coast, uh, Ephesus coast, all of these places, coastal places. And what happened is when a person got saved, they would often be a merchant. They'd be a merchant by taking their goods in a boat to the next city. When they took it to the next city, they would sell their goods, but they would also do the good work of sharing Jesus with that person they meant there. And then the person in that coastal land would encounter Jesus there and they would do the same. And what happened is the gospel spreads all over, all over the empire. All of which to say this, is that we are largely at crosswinds, you know, influenced by, by those movements. You know, we are better or worse influenced by the young restless reformed movement, the neo-Calvinist movement. Um, you know, uh, Spurgeon is my hero. Uh, I do love Dr. Dr. Piper and his, his, uh, his funny suits and his little, you know, those, those guys are influential to me. I do accept, accept this idea that, that the, the, key, the key point of life is, is to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We, we accept that as the, as the key understanding of who we are. We believe that God's glory is most expressed in Jesus Christ. We believe that, that God is a missionary God who is, who is rescuing people. We believe in his sovereignty. We believe in all of these things, and we, we try and protect them from theological error because Scripture tells us to. We try and test whether an apostle is an apostle or whether he's a liar. We try and test whether a prophet is true or, or fake in, in the sense that I'm protective when I let people speak here. You know, if I'm not speaking here, if I let someone speak here, I know what they're going to say, right? I know where they come from. I know what they're going to say uh, when we think about what we, we think about these things. So, you know, we are theologically solid. We're a lot like Ephesus at the beginning. My hope is that we will not ever become like Ephesus at the end, right? That we will never settle in to thinking that we're doing good enough because we have good theology, that we're solid enough because we teach right things. We're better than those other people because we teach better things than they do. That is not our calling, right understanding of who Jesus is should result in right love for what Jesus has done and does for us. And it should cause us to be so overwhelmed with love for him that it results in us to go and tell others. May our lampstand never be removed. And so it's, it's, it's a message for us that our lampstand might not be removed. How do we do that? We keep our first love. How do we keep our first love? Part of it is theological. We dive deeper into who Jesus is. I talked about this last week. The sin problem is really a worship problem. We need to worship Jesus more and better, and we need to worship him with all of our life and all of that. We need to keep our enthusiasm for who Jesus is at the, at the forefront so that that telling other people about Jesus is not hard work, but it is a natural result of who we are and what we do. We need to, as a congregation, remember that we exist not for ourselves, but we exist for the community. We are called to be a kingdom and priest, and our role is to be a mediator between God and the culture, that we are here in this place because Godwin Heights needs Jesus. We are planting in Godfrey Lee because Godfrey Lee needs Jesus, and we will continue to go where, where Jesus is needed, and we will continue to preach the good news, and we will continue to do good work so people see that our message is true and that our love for God is is overwhelming us and Jesus is something that they want and they need. We will continue to do that. And then I would say again, I don't want you to get it so twisted that you think that this is simply the work of the church. The church is you. 
right? And this is not the work of a program. This is the work of you. If I put into place all kinds of programs and carry them out, that is not enough. What is needed is for you as the, the makeup of the church to be about the business of telling your neighbor that Jesus lives so that your neighbor might encounter a living Jesus so that when they do, your neighbor will go and tell their family that Jesus lives so that when their family encounters Jesus, they will go and tell their friends that Jesus lives. So that when their friends encounter Jesus, they will go and tell their friends that Jesus lives. So that the word of God can spread and the love of God can, can, once, again, uh, can once again spread in this place and in this time. It is a post-Christian nation as to its culture, its politics, to everything else. But I do not... Uh, sorrow in that. I am not so broken at that. I, we have an opportunity as the church to return to our first love, who is Jesus, and proclaim him as the only answer to the kind of dysphoria that is what is going on in our culture. He's the only answer. He's the only hope. If you think what's going on in our culture is going to be happy for our culture, you and uh, would be mistaken. You don't understand what happens. This is dangerous and it's bad for our culture. I don't know what's going to happen. It could crumble. I've said it before. The Roman Empire was bigger and there longer and it's gone. I don't know what tomorrow holds for America, but I know this, that people are going to be looking for hope. And I know this, that the only hope is found in Jesus. And I know this, that if we return to our first love, if Jesus is so overwhelming to us, then we will tell them. We will tell our neighbors and our neighbors will meet Jesus and tell their neighbors. That is the hope. If we have any hope of being a church 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now and not having our lampstand removed, we must, we must return to our first love and do the works we did at first. We must, must mediate between God and the people. We must love Jesus so much that we tell them that he's the only hope, he's the only answer, he's the only way. Pray with me.